Uh, we're in Romans. We have been for a while, and we will continue to be for a while in Romans. We're all the way up to chapter 5 this morning, verses 6 through 11. So you can turn your Bibles there if you have them. If not, the passage will be on the screen in, in uh, just a minute. In the uh, dead of winter in 1777, for those of you that are not history buffs, those of you that are already know where I'm going with this, uh, George Washington and what was left of the Continental Army was, uh, was holed up in a little place called Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And uh, if you've taken American history, you've seen the pictures of the, the winter storms and the cold weather and uh, the devastating effect that, that being uh, exposed uh, out in the wilderness like that had on the army. And they barely survived Valley Forge to, to go on and begin to fight again in, in early in 1778. But while they were bivouacked in their winter quarters in uh, Valley Forge, George Washington had several greeters, one of whom was a pastor, uh, a guy by the name of Peter Miller. Peter Miller uh, had uh, had traveled overnight on foot to visit with the commanding general. He had literally gone over 25 miles. Uh, he had left his house the day before, uh, traveled to find Washington and seek him out because he wanted to ask for clemency for a man from his village by the name of Michael uh, Widman. Now, Michael Widman uh, had been a patriot, uh, but had been... Um, uh, caught by the British and uh, was in danger of losing his own life. And so he kind of squealed, uh, kind of ratted out the uh, the Continental Army, kind of gave away a lot of information to General Howe. He literally had a, a face-to-face uh, meeting with General Howe in Philadelphia earlier that winter. Well, when the British released him, he was captured by the Continentals, who decided he was a traitor, and, and rightly so, and they were going to hang him. But Peter Miller knew Michael Whitman, and so he literally traveled all night long on foot in the snow to seek out Washington. Uh, and Washington was so moved by Peter Miller's actions that he granted this pardon. Michael Widman was, uh, was spared from the gallows, but Miller got to Washington the day before uh, Widman was to be executed. And so uh, after the general invited the reverend to spend the night and to rest and to kind of regain his strength, he said, I can't wait because if I don't get to Widman uh, by nightfall tonight, he'll be executed. And he traveled another 15 miles to where he was being held prisoner to present the clemency papers to save Michael Widman. That is an amazing story <laughs> of graciousness. That, that's an amazing selfless act where someone would literally on foot travel over 35 miles in the dead of winter to, to try and gain someone else's salvation. Passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning in a sense talks about the distance that God went to save people like you and me. Paul in verses 6 through 11 of Romans 5 is going to give us some names, names, uh, identity, uh, uh, explain, uh, uh, words that explain who we really are. And then he's going to talk to us about even knowing who we are, what God actually did for us in spite of our identity. And then we'll also look at the outcome. Uh, what does it mean that, that, that God traveled such a great distance to offer us salvation? How do, how do we apply that to our lives? So with that in mind, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, hear the word of God. Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for a moment. Uh, Father, as Joe is so correctly articulated, uh, the work of your kingdom is about changed lives. It's not about places where we worship or uh, space that we have. Your Holy Spirit knows no boundaries. Your word is powerful. It, it, it is limitless in its ability to invade our hearts and our minds and, and to take us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And Lord God, wherever Green Tree ends up, physically speaking, may we always be a congregation that longs to be about the work of your gospel, to see your work as it's changed our hearts, not because we're good, not because we're smart, not because we're better. We Two, we're desperately lost. It is only by your grace that we are saved. But Father, you have now given us the opportunity to celebrate that, not just to coming together for worship, but also in the way in which we live. Father, that's really where the rubber meets the road. That really is, is what is at stake here. So when we leave these doors and we go back out into homes and schools and offices and businesses and communities and neighborhoods, we represent this grace. So, Father, we pray that you would apply this teaching to our hearts this morning, that we would understand the distance that you have traveled, and that we would see the profound impact that it has had, and that would transform our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would change us, make us more like Christ. Father, I can't do justice to these words. We need to hear your eternal truth, not mine. Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know and to learn today, each and every one of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, I, I want to take a few minutes and, and talk about the condition in which every person who has ever lived finds themselves apart from Christ. Uh, so we're going to look at our common condition. I, I'm going to kind of call it our critical condition. Uh, and then we're going to look at how God responds to that condition and then the outcome of that. So Paul Paul gives us four names in this passage of Scripture. I'm just going to walk through them. There, there are terms that identify our character. They're terms that identify our condition apart from the grace of God. The first one is found in verse 6 where Paul says this, for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died. Paul uses that term weak. The idea here is that we're without spiritual strength to make amends for the sins that we've committed against God. We, we don't have the strength uh, in our arms and our legs and our spiritual arms or legs, so to speak, to, to pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. We are helpless. We are needy. We cannot atone for our sins. Uh, a, a similar passage to this, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but if you want to look at it later, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins and the ways in which we used to live. So the idea here is that, that we need assistance. Now, if you look at poor Richard's almanac, you'll find a very different story told there. It's not scriptural. A lot of people think it's in the Bible, but it's actually in poor Richard's almanac. God helps those who help themselves. 
now, as much as I enjoy flipping through poor Richard's Almanac and seeing some of the fun things that are in there from, from our history as a country, I, I, I'm sorry, but God's word begs to differ radically. You cannot help yourself spiritually. I cannot help myself spiritually. Apart from the grace of God, I am weak to the point that I cannot lift my arms to help myself. I have no ability to address the plight that I have caused by my own sin. The second condition, Paul says, is not only are we weak, but in the same verse he says that we are ungodly. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What what does that term mean? What does that word actually mean? Well, basically it's speaking to, to the fact that we have ignored God. That God has given us precepts by which to live, the, the most famous that uh, probably everybody in this room has at least heard of, whether you can actually recite them or not, the Ten Commandments uh, would be an example of, of God's precepts. We have ignored the law of God. We have ignored God speaking into our lives, but it doesn't stop there because by ignoring God, what I determine by default is I'm going to put myself upon the throne. I'm not going to allow God to rule in my life, but that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a ruler. It means that I am going to be the sole arbiter of the decisions I make, the choices that, that I live by, so that I do become, in a sense, the master of my own fate, the captain of my own destiny. The idea is that, that being ungodly simply means that I've moved myself out from under the influence of God, and I've placed myself under a different influence, namely my own heart and soul and mind. Now, where this leads to, this is like a domino effect. So I ignore God, I put myself on the throne, and it puts me in an an adversarial relationship with you. Because we all want to be little kings. (laughs) And my kingdom has to run a certain way. And if your kingdom tries to get in the way of my kingdom, then, you know, woe be to you. And every, every point of division in the history of mankind, whether it's as serious as someone murdering somebody, as Cain murdered his brother Abel, or, or nations going to war against nations, or, or a couple uh, marriage not working out and getting divorced, or just having a disagreement with a business partner or a friend at school. All of that begins when we ignore God. There's a domino effect, and my moving away from God, making myself the king, means I need to protect my turf, which means I have to protect myself against you, and strife begins right there. And Paul says that's who we are apart from Christ. We are weak. And we are ungodly. But he gives us two other names as well. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, if you're a crossword puzzle person, I love doing crossword puzzles. I, I'm not all that great at them, but I, but I really enjoy them. Uh, every once in a while, you'll come across the clue that says uh, preacher's topic or Sunday topic. And it's always a three-letter word. And the answer is always sin. So if, you have, if you're a crossword person and you haven't figured that one out yet, there's the answer for you. It's sin. The preacher always loves to talk about sin. Well, here we are again this morning talking about sin. But what does it mean that when God looks at us, he defines us not only as weak and as ungodly, but what does he mean by seeing us as sinners? Well, the idea of sin is that we fall short of the standard. So you might say, you know, Tom, I know the Ten Commandments, and I try to live my life by those Ten Commandments. And I would say, that's that's not bad at all. The Ten Commandments show us the character of God. And setting them up as a goal and saying, you know, I, I want to do those things uh, that are positive and not do the things that are negative, that's, I have, I have no, no bone to pick with you there. However, I've never met a person that says, I always keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. I've never violated any of them. The vast majority, if not all the people I talk to, say, I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments, but you're a sinner, which means you don't always do it. 
And when I fall short, when, when the Ten Commandments uh, say uh, you, shall not, uh, you shall not commit idolatry, you, you, know, you, won't, you won't want to make something uh, a god that shouldn't be a god, and I worship something other than God, I go, oh, man, I tried, but I failed. That's what it means to be a sinner, that I fall short of God's standard. I fail to keep the law. Jesus was in a conversation with a bunch of theologians one day, and they said, okay, Jesus, you're so smart. What's the greatest commandment? And without blinking, the Lord said, it's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And if you do that, the second will be exactly like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And you go, that's a great standard. But you know what? We never live up to it. We always fall short. And so Paul rightly says we are sinners. But then he goes even a step further in verse 10. And Paul says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, so on and so forth. Now, when Paul uses the word enemies there, he's not saying against each other. He, you know, he's not, not saying that, that we're personal enemies. He's saying while we were the enemies of God, where our sinful condition has left us is that we are not only um, without spiritual strength, not only do we ignore God, not only do we fall short, but we literally are stridently opposed to God's influence in our lives. We actually fight against him. We war against him uh, sometimes by doing wonderfully great things by the world's standards. We can, you can practice the greatest acts of charity with a core motivator of seeking to keep God out of your life. It's not that people don't do good things. It's that, that in doing good things at times, we are purposely rejecting the lordship of God in our lives and we become his enemies. We seek to dethrone him and be the ruler of our own lives. And we are at war with God. Henry David Thoreau on his deathbed, his sister was comforting him in the last hours of his life. And she said, have you made peace with God? To which Thoreau responded, I didn't know we had had an argument. Now as pithy as that comment is, it couldn't be more wrong. If you, apart from Christ, if I, apart from Christ, reject the grace of God in him, I am at war. I am opposed to his lordship. And so Paul points out our condition from God's perspective. As God looks at the earth, what does God see? God sees weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. How does he respond? God looks down and sees this, this kind of, this mess, so to speak. What is his reaction? It may be a bit unexpected. Some of you may be aware of this, but for others of you, this may be new information. In chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, While we were still weak, at the right time, Jesus, the Son of God, did what? Christ died for the ungodly. He died for those who had rejected His truth. He died for those who wanted to go the opposite direction. He gave His life as a sacrifice so that we could experience salvation. Paul builds on this in verses 7 and 8, and he says this. He says, maybe for a good person, one would scarcely die, you know, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, somebody might dare even to die. But God shows his love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, you know, I can kind of get my mind around the idea that somebody might die for a good person. Um, in literature, if you want a good example of this, if, you read, if you've read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you have little Frodo the Hobbit, who's a little tiny guy, and he has stumbled upon the ring of power that, that is the enemy's ring, that if the enemy gets it back, he's going to be able to destroy all of Middle-earth. He's going to be able to bring it under the darkness. And so Frodo, this little tiny guy, and four of his buddies start out on a quest 
to try to destroy the ring before the enemy gets it back. Well, they get five other partners who come along with them. And the five guys that come along with them, they're all big strat. There's one guy's a king and another guy's, he's an elf who can shoot, you know, he can like shoot an arrow like two miles and hit somebody right in the middle of that. I mean, they're all these super, you know, super strong guys, right? They're all these heroic type personalities. And they all say the same thing. If, if we need to die to save you so you could destroy the ring, we will gladly give our lives. That's what Paul's saying. So, okay, we get that. Maybe for a good person, someone might dare to die. Maybe for the right cause, someone would give their life. But he doesn't identify us as the right cause, friends. He doesn't say by our merits. He doesn't say by our goodness. He doesn't say by, by us being successful at following God. He says that while we were still falling well short of the gospel of Jesus Christ, while we were, while we were ignoring God's grace, Jesus came and died. Then he says this in verse 10. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He takes it even a step further. The enemies of God have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. Think about that for just a moment. God gave his son's life so that his enemies could experience salvation. It's almost impossible to get your mind around that concept. Uh, Matthias Grunewald, who was a famous 16th century uh, German Renaissance painter, uh, painted this depiction of the crucifixion, and it's simply called the crucifixion. And I'm putting it on the screen this morning, not because you can see it very clearly, but actually because I want you to go back home and look at it later on. So uh, Grunewald, his last name is spelled G-R-U-N-E-W-A-L-D, 16th century German Renaissance painter. You search engine, you'll find it. And, and the webpage I went to actually allows you to kind of take a microscope and look all over the entire picture. So if you take time to do this, it's pretty this afternoon, you might not get to it tonight. Kind of ignore the outer lower edges and just center in the middle. This is John the Baptist who was not historically at the death of Jesus, but he's pointing, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what I want you to look at if you go and you look at this picture is look at the body of Jesus. Look at the face of Jesus. Look at the hands and the feet of Jesus and look at them very, very closely. And what you'll notice is the intensity of the suffering of the Son of God. Not just the physical suffering, but what Grunewald accurately captures is that Jesus is bearing the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders and it is killing him. He is experiencing the wrath of God that you deserve and that I deserve so that we can have grace and mercy and forgiveness. That is the distance which God traveled to offer you and me salvation. God's response to weak, ungodly, sinful enemies is to offer a gift of mercy and grace. What should the outcome be in this transaction? Let's go back to verse 9. For just a moment, verse 9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And I'm going to go to verse 10 in just a second. Before I do this, we're about to enter into a grammar lesson. So grammar here, uh, rules of of grammar are are going to be important. So uh, I know that really excites you. I hate to say it, but my eighth grade English teacher was correct. Grammar is important. If while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God 
by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. I want you to look at the tenses in both of those verses. What it's saying is that we have been justified. We shall be saved. We were reconciled, past tense. We are reconciled, present tense. We shall be saved. This is a very, very carefully constructed Greek grammar. Paul is saying a couple of things here. He's saying that we need to be saved. We were the enemies of God. Not they, not them, but us. Paul is very clear that we are the ones who bear the guilt, which means that we are confronted with the decision whether or not we're going to trust in Christ. Paul is saying every one of us needs this salvation. God is freely offering it through the death of his son. And as James Edwards, a modern-day theologian writing on Romans, says this, it is one thing to say that Christ died. It is quite another thing to say Christ died for me. Friends, do you see that? Have you, can you say that this morning? Can I say with, with the statement of faith, Christ died for me? And if he didn't die for me, I lose because I am the ungodly one. I am the weak one. I am the sinful one. I am the enemy of God. And not just theoretically do you assent to the idea that, that Jesus died uh, to save sinners. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago, and he said, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus died for sinners. And I stopped him mid-sentence. I said, no, you don't. Nobody who believes it says it the way you just said it. I said, I don't mean to be offensive or rude, but I'm not at all convinced that you believe in Christ. And so we began to have an, actually a pretty interesting conversation on that topic. Now, I would encourage you not to be rude like me, <laughs> but the facts are, you don't say that lightly. Christ died for me. It, it says something about my need it also says something about my Savior. But also notice that it's in the passive. We have been saved. We didn't do it. It's not our effort. It's not our energy. It's done by God, through God, from God completely. We are the recipients. He is the one who acts on our salvation. And then also notice these tenses. We have been saved. We are saved. We are reconciled. We will be saved. The, what Paul is doing here is he's saying there's an event in the past, and he's looking back to the cross, and this moment of uh, uh, when we're saved, this moment of justification, when, when Jesus paid for our sins. And he's saying that was a, an event that happened, and it, and it will never change. It's in the past, but it has an ongoing ripple effect into the future. So that today, right now in the present, I am reconciled, and a million years from now, I will still be reconciled to God because of that action in the past that has an ongoing impact for all of, all of eternity. The passage screams assurance of salvation. If you've put your faith in Christ Jesus, God isn't going to pull the rug out from under your feet when you make a mistake next week. He's not going to ignore the pain in your life that causes you to be tempted to sin. God has saved us. He will continue to walk with us. Christ get, died to give his life for us. The Father accepted it, and the deal is sealed forever. As the 4th century early church father, St. Chrysostom, said, If God gives great gifts to his enemies, will he give anything less to his friends? That's the outcome. We have been justified. We will be saved. So what do we do? Verse 11, Paul sums it up. It's pretty obvious. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What do we do? We celebrate. We, we, we have a party. You know, you, you probably don't invite your friends to come to church on Sunday morning saying, hey, I'm going to a party. Would you like to come with me? But technically, you would be accurate. 
because we rejoice in the grace in which we stand. We celebrate what God has done because, again, remember the list describes us. We are the weak ones. We are the ungodly ones. We are the sinners. We are, we are God's enemies. But God has redeemed us. And so the, the, the correct response is to rejoice. But is rejoicing just for Sunday mornings? <laughs> is rejoicing just when you come to worship service? Or maybe when you get your Bible out early in the morning before you go off to work and you read it for a little while and you pray a little while? Is that, is that the sum and substance of our rejoicing? If so, I think we miss the golden opportunity that is before us to apply the gospel to our lives and to to every person with whom we come into contact. I'm not going to put this verse on the board. We looked at it last week, but let me just remind you, chapter 5, verse 5, one verse before this, uh, this passage says this, hope does not put us to shame. Our hope in Jesus does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts, that unconditional love, that agape love. It knows no boundaries. It knows no limits. It's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What Paul says is that there's actually a transformation that takes place in your life when you put your faith in Christ. And we talked about that last week. How does that then work its way out into our lives? I just want to ask one question this morning because I've asked myself one question all week long and I I haven't liked the answer I've come up with, but I tell people all the time, they say, what do you do on Sunday morning? I said, I invite people into my pain. (laughs) That's kind of what I, I get paid to do on Sunday morning. But I went back and I looked at this list. The weak, the ungodly, the sinner, and the enemy. And I began to ask myself this question. I want you to ask yourself, if you're willing to, if you're a disciple of Jesus, how do I react, being a disciple of Jesus, to people who fit that description? What's my interaction with the weak of this world? How do I engage with the ungodly? What's my attitude towards the sinner? How do I react towards someone who is an enemy not an enemy of Jesus, but, but an enemy of, of Tom Ricks. Here, here's what I came up with. For those who are weak, indifferent, and mildly compassionate. For those who are ungodly, I'm disengaged. For those who are sinners, I'm judgmental. And my enemies, well, I'm just flat out hostile. <laughs> Sounds like somebody who's really embrace the grace of Jesus, doesn't it? I told you about the guy I confronted who said, oh, I love Jesus. I said, no, you don't. I should have been looking in the mirror because the facts are what God wants to do in your life and my life is not just save us. God hasn't created a Green Tree Community Church just for the purpose of salvation, but rather so that when we walk out these doors that we would live lives of rejoicing. doesn't mean we dance a jig and we're always happy and we're, you know, we're silly but it means that we are founded upon the fact that God has died for us while we were his enemies. And that's an amazing, amazing grace that we have been given, that we are recipients of, not because of anything we've done, but because of the goodness of God. And that should change our hearts as his love is poured into us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. And if I can't find a place in my life where I'm connecting those dots, I need to fall to my knees to repentance. And they ask God to change me from the inside out. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ in the Western culture is largely irrelevant today, not because we don't know the truth, but because we don't live the truth. Because we're too busy trying to be and look like the right people instead of falling on the grace of God and living that life in front of the world to see. See, I have to make a confession. I only told you part of the story about Peter Miller. There's a lot more to the story between him and Michael Whitman, who he saved. And I'll try to be brief, but I want you to hear the rest of the story. 
when Miller showed up at Washington's camp, they were, they were acquaintances. Miller actually ran a, uh, a kind of a, we'll just call it a retreat center for modern day um, terminology. And that retreat center had been turned into a hospital, and there were over 150 convalescing Continental soldiers in that hospital uh, on the day that they had this conversation. So uh, Whitman, who, or excuse me, Miller, who was a pacifist and was not engaged in fighting, was engaged in the cause and was helping uh, heal soldiers who had been wounded in battle. When he showed up and he began to have this conversation with the general about Whitman, Washington said, you know, as he asked for the pardon, he said, I hesitate to give you this pardon because if I do so, it might look like I'm playing favorites. You've come here to ask me for the life of your friend, and if I grant it, it, you know, it may come across the wrong way if I don't grant someone else's. And Miller stopped him and said, General, you don't understand. He's not my friend. He's my worst enemy. You see, Miller had been a pastor in the German Reformed Church, and here we are. We, Green Tree is kind of a Reformed uh, in theology. We are Reformed in theology, and we're proud of it. We're, we believe in it. We believe it's biblical. Uh, but uh, over the years, uh, Miller became convinced that he should go theologically in a bit of a different direction. And Whitman was one of the leaders in, in that German Reformed church in his village. And he took the affront of Miller leaving very personally. He was outraged. And literally for years, every time they crossed paths with one another, this Reformed guy, you know, we're, we're, we're the good guys, right? He would spit in Miller's face. He would shove him to the ground, kick dirt on him. One time he literally physically attacked him because Miller wasn't reformed enough anymore. And when Miller got the pardon and he left Washington that night, Washington or that day, Washington said, why are you doing this? Miller said, I look at what Jesus has done for me. How could I do any less? Upon his arrival... Uh, at the execution site, and he got there just apparently barely about an hour before the execution was supposed to take place. And Whitman is quoted as saying, oh, here comes old Peter Miller. He has come to get his revenge. And watch me hang. Imagine his amazement when Miller handed the pardon to the officials and Whitman was released. And history says that they walked home together. I think that the church of Jesus Christ in many ways has become irrelevant in Western culture. Not because we don't have a lot of folks. Not because we don't believe the right things. Not because in some way that the Spirit of God has abandoned 21st century Christians in North America. But I think in many ways we've become a non-issue because we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten that we are weak, that we didn't save ourselves. There's nothing I did to get God to love me. There's nothing you did in your own power and your own strength to God to love you. When we, when we feel that way, we're filled not with the gospel. We're filled with self-righteousness. When we don't see the pain and the suffering around us as opportunities to show the power of the gospel, we become indifferent and the world passes us by and says Christians are no different than anyone else. And yet God sent his son to save the weak, the ungodly, the sinner, the enemy. Not just so that we could experience salvation for all of eternity. Praise God, that's true. But so that we would then look at the world in a radically, 
radically different light. So I ask you this morning, friends, if you're a disciple of Jesus, what's your heart? What's your attitude towards those in your life that will be classified as you were once classified apart from Christ? May God give us the grace to repent where we need to repent. And as he promises in his word, may he give us his love, his Holy Spirit, that we may actually follow Jesus into this world, be led by him so that others who are just like us can know him. Will you pray with me?